discrimination and prejudice and treating certain groups of people with less fairness and less justice than other groups. I think two names come to mind in that whole discussion. Two names of two individuals who have worked tirelessly to advocate for the fair treatment of all persons. And I think the first name that comes to mind is probably Martin Luther King Jr. But the other name I think that comes to mind is Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi, we may be familiar with Gandhi. He was um, the subject of a movie. I think they made a, mo- made a movie about his life back in the 80s. So you may have seen that. But, but uh, you may be familiar with Gandhi and his tireless effort at bringing equal rights to all Indians. Gandhi lived in, of course, India in a time in which the caste system was in place in India. And he worked tirelessly to bring an end to the caste system. The caste system was a way of doing life in which a person was born into a certain caste of people. And whatever caste you were born into was your caste for your whole life. You died in whatever caste you were born into. Now that was kind of good if you were born into an upper caste. But if you were born into a lower caste, particularly the lowest one, the, the, those known as outcasts or untouchables, if that was the case, then, well, life was not so good. Because those who occupied the lowest caste of society were very much ostracized. They were called untouchables for a reason. And so Gandhi worked tirelessly to bring an end to this. He was assassinated, I believe, in 1948. But in 1950... The, um, the caste system was outlawed in India, largely because of his efforts. But as good and as noble as Gandhi was, Gandhi is in hell today. He is in hell because he rejected the salvation of Jesus Christ. He was a Hindu. And not only was he a Hindu, but he was a Hindu that had several opportunities more than one opportunity to receive the grace of Christ. He writes in his autobiography that during a time in his life in which he was living in England, he became particularly attracted to Christianity and the faith of Christians. And he he was so attracted to Christianity that he, he actually started reading the Gospels. He read, in fact, he read the whole New Testament and found what Jesus talked about in the Gospels. He found it so very attractive, this way of treating people, all people with love and fairness. He found that very attractive. He saw that as a solution to the problem of the caste system in India. And so being attracted to this way of life or this faith, he actually went to a Christian church while in England one time, one Sunday morning. He goes to a Christian church with the intention of asking the minister there to explain some things to him about Christianity and about Jesus and salvation. However, when Gandhi reached the front door of the church, he writes in his autobiography that there was an usher that stood in the doorway and would not allow him to enter. And in fact, told him that he needed to just go and worship with some people who were like him. Gandhi, of course, left and never came back. He said later that if the Christians have castes, then why bother? I'll just remain a Hindu. Now, as tragic and as sad as that is, of course, we know that Gandhi is responsible for his own rejection of Jesus Christ. No one is responsible for Gandhi's spiritual fate except for Gandhi. But at the same time, the self-righteousness and the prejudice of that man on that day certainly did not help anything, did it? It certainly put a wall, a barrier up that did not need to be put up. 
What we see in Acts chapter 10 is just the opposite of that, isn't it? We're in Acts chapter 10 again this morning. And what we're seeing here is that rather than building walls, God is taking walls down. His gospel is taking down walls within Peter's heart. Look at what he's doing with Peter. He's taking Peter to Samaria. To, he's taking him to the Gentiles. He's having him stay in the house of a tanner. All these different things we've talked about last week and the week before that show us that God is breaking down the prejudices in Peter's heart. And he's preparing Peter for, the, to, for his mission of taking the gospel to these Gentile nations. And so God is preparing this in the heart of Peter. He's breaking down his prejudice. He's breaking down the walls because the gospel is a gospel that transcends human barriers. The gospel brings together those who otherwise would not come together. The gospel brings those together under the banner of Christ. So with that short introduction, let's just jump right into verse 1. What we're going to do this this morning is we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 rather briefly. And then we're going to skip down to verse 17. And we're going, to, we're going to go from verse 17 down to the end of the chapter. So starting here at verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So like we said last week, Cornelius was a religious man. He was a religious man who was very much lost. Much like religious people of our day to day that we see that are very religious people, but they are nonetheless outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. Cornelius was a religious man, but he was a lost religious man. But there's a difference between the religion of Cornelius and the religion of those around him, as well as the religion of, of some that we see around us today. The difference is that Cornelius was dissatisfied in his dead religion. He was dissatisfied in his religion of works and he was seeking for something real. He was seeking for something true. God is drawing Cornelius to himself. And so we see how this is coming about in the way of this vision, this angel that visits him. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. So now Cornelius sends this group of people, these three men, two servants and one soldier. He sends them to Joppa to fetch Peter. Now drop down to verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one whom you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. So again, we see, notice the transformation of Peter. Peter invites these uncircumcised Gentiles into the same house in which he's staying to be his guest. The, the transformation in Peter is remarkable. He is genuinely, genuinely a new creation. 
He is um, associating with uncircumcised Gentiles, inviting them to be his guest. Then verse 23, the next day he arose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now this group leaves Joppa and goes to Caesarea. It's a group of 10 people. Three of them were the ones sent by Cornelius to Peter, two servants and a soldier. And then we're going to read down chapter 11, verse 12. We're going to read that Peter takes six Jewish Christians to, and sends them or, and, and has them go back with him. Six Jewish Christians. That'll be important later on in chapter 11 because Peter's going to get in trouble for what he does here. And he's going to need these other six Jewish witnesses to back him up. So he takes six, six Jewish Christians with him and himself. That makes 10 people. And they go to Caesarea, which is a journey of 32 miles. 32 miles, which, was, uh, which would take two days to cover. And so verse 24, oh, by the way, remember the angel that comes to Cornelius? Why didn't God just have the angel tell Cornelius what Peter's going to tell him? Wouldn't that have been a whole lot simpler? But again, the gospel that saves man can only be given by those who are partakers in this gospel, those who have shared in this gospel. Those who have no part in, in the salvation of Jesus Christ cannot share it with others. The angels have not shared in this gospel. And so uh, God sends Peter, who himself is a partaker in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now verse 24, on the following day, so it takes two days, so the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and it, he had called together his relatives and close friends. Now that is amazing. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together, past participle, past Tense, he has called together his close friends and relatives and they're waiting for him. Verse 27, Peter comes in, he says, he found many persons gathered there. So they are already gathered waiting on Peter to show up, anxious to hear what he has to say. Now, how did they know when Peter was going to get there? Furthermore, how did they even know that Peter was going to agree to come? They didn't. Cornelius didn't know that Peter was going to come. Again, he's a Gentile. Peter's a Jew. He very well have, may have refused to come. Furthermore, even if he did agree to come, how do they know when he's going to get there? Cornelius knows that the soonest Peter could possibly get here is four days. And so then he gathers his friends and close relatives and they're gathered together in Cornelius' house waiting, hoping that Peter will show up. Don't miss the eagerness that they have, the anxiousness that they have to hear the saving words that Peter is going to share with them. Peter walks in after this two-day journey to a captive audience. Waiting. Maybe they've been waiting probably for hours. Waiting to hear the message that Peter has for them. The message from the living God. The eagerness that they have to hear this is amazing, isn't it? How often do we see this kind of eagerness today to hear the words of God? You know, I'll confess to you that it's, it's a frustration of mine. It's a frustration because week in and week out, I pray over the scriptures. I study, um, I seek God's guidance. I seek what God would have for us, the message that he has for us. And God has never let me down. Every Sunday morning, I've all, I'm excited for what God has to say to us, not to the church down the road, but to us. And so often it seems like I'm the only one that's excited about that. I know that's not true, but sometimes it seems that way. Sometimes it seems as though the preaching of the Word of God is something to endure rather than something to enjoy. And it's frustrating. 
Because God has given a word to us. God wrote his scriptures to us, but in addition to that, he has given a specific application of those scriptures to this body for this day. And I find that tremendously exciting. And sometimes it seems like not many people share that excitement. It's frustrating. Peter doesn't have this frustration right now because he has a captive audience eager to hear what he has to say. You know, the closest I've ever experienced to this is not in this culture, but in another culture in Nicaragua. Nicaragua is a place that right now is in full revival mode. People are coming to Christ in incredible numbers in revival right now. Every time I've been to to, to Nicaragua, I've been amazed at just the openness that people have to the gospel. I, I many times I literally have stopped people on the street and you, and you start talking to them about Jesus and within a few minutes a crowd is gathered around and a few minutes later people are in tears and people are being converted. It's truly amazing. I remember one time I stopped a young boy on the street. He was probably 14 years old and started talking to him about Jesus and he says, wait, can you come to my house and tell my family about this too? And I said, sure, thinking that he would say, you know, maybe tomorrow or some other time. Tonight, maybe you could come back. And I, so I said, when? He said, now. Can you come right now? And so we go to his house, and within five minutes, he'd gathered together every aunt, uncle, cousin, and grandfather that he had. And within 10 minutes later, revival had fallen on that house. Incredible. Incredible revival. Eagerness to hear the Word of God. Anxious to hear the Word of God. Open to the preaching of the Word of God. Not something we see in our culture very often. Peter sees it here because not only his Cornelius, but also his close friends and relatives are also dissatisfied with the dead religion that they've been living in, the religion of works. And so they're seeking something real and Peter has something real for them. Now, verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Again, you see the hungriness, the spiritual hunger of Cornelius. He literally falls down and worships Peter at his feet. Now don't miss what's going on there because who is who is Cornelius? Cornelius is a Roman soldier. Not only is he a Roman soldier, he is a Roman centurion, a leader of soldiers. What was the purpose for Roman soldiers in Palestine? Their whole reason to be there was to control the Jewish people because the Romans were an occupying force. And they were occupying a defeated nation. Their whole purpose was to keep their thumb on the Jewish people and and keep them in control. And so the Romans, they, they didn't care for the Jews any more than the Jews cared for them. They hated one another. And here's this Roman soldier that's in charge of keeping control over the Jews. And he's kneeling and groveling at the feet of a Jewish fisherman. Wow, the humility. Reminds us of Saul from chapter 9. Remember as he's led by the hand into Damascus. A humble man now. You see the humility here of Cornelius. He's so hungry. And also you see again a change in Peter. Because what an opportunity for Peter. What an opportunity for him to sort of make a comment. You know, here's this Roman soldier groveling at my feet. The hated Romans. What an opportunity for him. What was the last time that we saw Peter interact with a Roman soldier. The last time we saw Peter interacting with Roman soldiers was in the garden when they were arresting Jesus and Peter grabs a sword and starts swinging it. 
The transformation in Peter, I'm telling you, is incredible. He is a new creation now. We see his teachable heart. He gets it now. Now, verse 27, And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter gets it now. We see again his teachable heart. And, and so he's declaring to everybody, listen, I've been wrong. There is no distinction between you and I. I am not better than you. I get it now. I've been wrong about this. this we, we're reminded of, of Paul, again in chapter 9, who had based his entire life upon this theology that said the Jewish people were, um, were looking for a Messiah who was a victorious political Messiah. And once he meets Christ and he's converted, he goes into the synagogues and says, I was wrong. I was wrong about everything. We see the same thing in Peter here. His teachable heart has, has, opened, up, has opened him up to the rebuke, the correction that, that God has for him. And he's received it and changed. You know, there is no shame in being wrong. There's no shame in being wrong about God. No shame in being wrong about how God would have us to live our lives. There's no shame in that. There is shame in being shown a better way and still clinging to, to what you know is, is wrong. There is shame in being shown a more correct understanding, a more correct way, a more correct perception of God and still clinging to what you have been shown is wrong. That's, where, that's what's shameful. To have an unteachable heart that cannot receive correction. But Peter has, doesn't have this. Peter has received it. And so verse 29, So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Verse 30, And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in, the, in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. And your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Wow. What Peter just said right there was that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Peter is declaring an end to the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Wow. So I truly understand there that God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. God doesn't favor one group of lost people over another. You know, we, we want to hold on to that, don't we? We, that we? we all want to believe that. We all want to believe that God favors our group over other groups, right? Whatever group you're talking about, a racial group, an ethnic group, a national group, uh, a political group, whatever group you belong to, we all want to think that God favors our group of people over other groups of people. It's like when we were fighting the Civil War in this country. Remember, maybe reading in history books, how um, soldiers from both sides would write in their journals, they write in their diaries that God was on their side and God wanted them to win. We always want to think of God being partial to our group. Peter says, in God is no partiality, is no favoritism. God shows favor, but not favoritism. So then verse 35, but in every nation among 
or I'm sorry, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, let's think for just a moment about verse 35. Verse 35 is a verse that we need to be careful with because we could very easily make the mistake with verse 35 that we make with a lot of scripture, and that is we take verse 35 and lift it right off the page, take it out of its context, and say, look at what Acts chapter 10, verse 35 says. What does Acts chapter 10, verse 39 say, or verse 35 say if we look at it by itself? By itself, it says, Cornelius, you're just fine with God. Doesn't it? Every, every nation, anyone who fears God, which we're told Cornelius does, and does what is right, which is what we're told Cornelius does, is acceptable to God. Take verse 35 off the page, and that's what it says. See how dangerous it is to study Scripture outside of its context? But we're not going to do that. We're going to keep it in its context. So when we look at verse 35 together with verse 34, here's what Peter is saying to Cornelius. He's saying to Cornelius there is a great paradox in the salvation of God. And the paradox is this. The salvation of God is both restrictive and unrestrictive at the same time. It is restrictive because salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ. There is no other truth, no other salvation except Jesus Christ Himself. It is narrow, it is restrictive. That is the only way to know God, John 6, verse 44. But at the same time, there is a wideness and an openness to the grace of God that is completely unrestricted in the sense that all who would come to God by Jesus Christ, all of them may come. As the prophet Joel says in Joel 2, verse verse 32, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there is a restrictiveness to the salvation of God and there is a wideness to it. That's what Peter's saying with these two verses together. Now, verse 36, what Peter's going to do now is he's going to now preach the sermon to the Gentiles. And it, it would be worth our time to go through the sermon line by line and look at what Peter preaches to them because this is an important sermon. This is the first sermon preached to the Gentiles. This will, from this will be birthed the first Gentile church. So it'd be worth our time to look at this carefully, but for the sake of time, we'll just kind of read through what Peter says here. Beginning verse 36, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus was God's anointed, chosen Messiah. He anointed him with his Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree. So there's the death of Jesus and Jesus didn't just die, Cornelius. He died for you, Cornelius. And you, and you. We're not given the names of the other people there. but That's what Peter's saying. Jesus didn't just die, Cornelius. He died in your place for the sin that you have committed. He substituted himself for you on a tree. Verse 40, but God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear not to all the people, but to us. There's the theme of the apostles as the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He made him to appear to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after 
after he rose from the dead. So his resurrection was not just a spiritual resurrection. It's not as though Jesus Jesus is no longer with us, but what he stood for lives on. No, this is a physical resurrection. He ate and drank with us. A bodily resurrection from the dead. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed to God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Once again, there's the narrowness of God's grace and the wideness of God's grace altogether. The narrowness, he who believes in him. The wideness, everyone who believes in him. So, we see the two of those together. So that's the, the message of Peter. Again, and and uh, keep in mind, Luke is summarizing this. Peter obviously talked a lot more than this, and his sermon was longer than just a few verses, but Luke is summarizing what Peter said. Then verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. So the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter's message. The Holy Spirit was not polite enough to wait until Peter was done preaching and finished up his sermon with a poem. And then they sang a few verses of Just As I Am while Peter patiently waited up at the front of Cornelius' house for anyone who might be fed, feel led to come forward and be converted. That's not how the Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit interrupted what Peter was doing. We see the same thing down in chapter 11, verse 15. Peter says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on those who believed. So it's very interesting here what the Holy Spirit does. It seems to be this sort of spontaneous surprise sort of thing that the Holy Spirit does. He interrupts Peter while he's speaking and converts people on the spot. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this, to think of how, how sometimes the Spirit of God interrupts the work of the church to do the work of the kingdom. You ever notice how sometimes the Spirit just wants to interrupt the work of the church to do the work of the kingdom, the work of, of saving lost people. Happens frequently. You know, we're so busy with the work of the church, doing this, getting that done. And then God just wants to interrupt us to have us minister to somebody. And sometimes we treat it just like that, just like an interruption, don't we? I'll make a confession to you. This happened to me just this week. This week was... a a difficult week for me. It, it was a week, it was one of those weeks where you have way more to do and you just don't have enough time to do what you need to do. I spent almost all day Monday at Duke Hospital and was back there on Tuesday. And then, of course, yesterday was our ladies' conference, so almost the whole day was taken up with that. Almost all of Friday afternoon was taken up with that and all of Friday night. So put all that together and there was more than three days that um, was devoted to those things this past week. So, out of seven days, I had four left to get done what I needed to get, to get done. So I was obviously very pressed for time and was trying to squeeze a whole lot of work into a little bit of space. So Friday afternoon comes, and I'm just I'm frantically working, trying to get done what I need to get done. And I come back into my study, and there's a message on the machine. And the message goes like this. My name is so-and-so. My number is so-and-so. Would somebody just call me? I just need to talk to somebody. And do you know what went through my mind? You guessed it. I don't have time for this. 
I don't have time for this. That went through my mind. So if there's anybody left who thinks that your pastor's a perfect pastor, I just blew that myth out of the water, didn't I? Because that went through my mind. I don't have time for the work of saving lost people, of ministering to hurting people, because I'm busy doing the work of the church. But when God is ready to bring revival, He interrupts the work of the church to do the work of the kingdom. And that's what we see here, verses 44 through 48. We'll we'll have to look at 45 through 48 next time. But what we see is the Holy Spirit falling on them. They're converted on the spot. The first Gentile church is born. They're baptized. And Peter stays with them and teaches them for a while. So let's just take just a moment here at the end. And let's just, what I want to do is I want to talk about the main point of this passage. What's the main thing that Luke has for us? The main thing that Luke has for us here is he is showing us an example of true revival. This is what true revival looks like. True revival appears to be spontaneous. It appears to be a surprise to us. Although it's really not. But it appears that way. The Holy Spirit appears to be acting spontaneously. And people seem to be extraordinarily open to the Word of God extraordinarily desirous of the Word of God, and people are converted in large numbers. That's what true revival looks like. Folks, revival does not look like bringing an evangelist from out of town to preach from Sunday morning to Thursday night and having a few special singing groups come in for us. That's not what what revival looks like. Those may be evangelistic meetings, but that's not revival. True revival looks like what we see here in Acts chapter 10. So what I want to do... I want to take just a moment and I want to notice three characteristics of true revival that we see very clearly here. First, when we see true revival, we see God's people getting out of their comfort zone to minister to lost people. I don't think Peter could have gotten any further out of his comfort zone. I think Peter was so far out of his comfort zone it wasn't even funny. From chapter 9 all the way through chapter 10, he couldn't have been more comfortable than staying with a tanner, than going to Samaria, than ministering to Gentiles and uncircumcised people. I don't think Peter could have been more uncomfortable. But when we see true revival, we see God's people loving lost people enough to get out of their comfort zone. Secondly, we see when true, with true revival, we see how the Holy Spirit has prepared for true revival. Again, when revival happens, it appears to be spontaneous. It it appears to be unplanned, but it's not that way. What actually has happened is the Holy Spirit has been planning it and preparing for it ahead of time. We see how the Holy Spirit has been planning and preparing Peter. He's been preparing Peter by breaking down the walls of prejudice and hatred in his heart. He's also been preparing Cornelius. Cornelius prays to God, gives alms to the poor. He does all those things because God is drawing Cornelius to him. The angel coming to Cornelius, telling him to send for Peter, all of that is the Holy Spirit preparing Cornelius for this. So we see how when revival happens, it is the result of the preparation of the Holy Spirit. Folks, revival is the work of God. It's not the work of man. 
God does it. He plans it. He schedules it. He does it when he wants to do it. But that is not to say that we cannot look to the examples of revival like Acts chapter 10 and where we can participate with what God is doing, where we can join in together with what God's doing. We shouldn't do that. That is, that is not to say that at all. Revival is the work of God. But where we can join in with Him and participate with Him, we should, right? So what are you doing to prepare for revival? Is the question. What are you doing to prepare for revival? That's a really vague question, isn't it? Really broad. Let's make it a little bit narrower. What did you do to prepare for this moment right now? Right now. What, the, the preaching of God's Word right now. What did you do to prepare for this moment? Was your preparation for this moment getting out of bed, getting a shower, getting some clothes on, some breakfast, and getting yourself into the building? Was that your preparation for the preaching of God's Word? Do you need to prepare for the preaching of God's Word? What what do you do to prepare yourself to receive the preaching of God's Word. I'll tell you what we normally do to prepare to receive the preaching of God's Word is next to nothing, right? And we come into God's, the assembly of God's people, and we expect the worship music and the preaching to just happen. And we expect the moving of the Spirit to just happen in our hearts, don't we? And then we leave dissatisfied, disappointed. You know, the Spirit just didn't move today. And then we blame others, right? It's the pastor's fault, the the preacher's fault. That message that he preached just wasn't very good. Or the music, you know, the the music just wasn't very good. The music didn't get the Spirit moving this morning, right? Somebody else's fault. When all along we came into the preaching of God's Word completely unprepared for. Folks, if you had an important job interview tomorrow morning, would you do anything to prepare for that? You bet you would. Is a job interview more important than the preaching of God's Word? What do you do to prepare for the preaching of God's Word? I'll tell you what you can do. Pray. Prayer. Bathe this in prayer. Pray for me. Anybody pray for me this week? Yesterday? I hope so. I see a few heads nodding. What if everybody prayed for me? What if every single one here was praying for me yesterday? Do you think my preaching would be any different? Or, or put it to a different way, do you think you would hear my preaching any differently if you had been praying for me all week? So pray for me. Pray for the service. Pray for yourself. Pray for an open heart. Here's another one. Read the text. Study the passage that we're going to be looking at. Because you know what? Unless you're a visitor... You know exactly what I was going to be preaching about today. Acts chapter 10. And you know what I'm going to be preaching about next Sunday. Acts chapter 11. That's one of the reasons I preach books like I do. Because you know exactly where I'm going to be and where I'm going to be preaching. And so knowing that, you can read it ahead of time, meditate on it, pray through it, and you will come into the preaching of God's Word better prepared. You will receive more from it. 
The Spirit will minister to you more. That is preparing yourself for the preaching of God's Word and that is preparing yourself for revival. So that's the second thing we see. The last thing we see is prayer. Peter was praying. That's how all this gets started. Peter was praying. Even Cornelius is praying. Folks, revival never happens. Never. Underline never. Revival never happens without devoted concentrated, focused, revival prayer. Every revival movement, every awakening in the church's history has one thing in common. It all happens after a period of renewed, focused, corporate prayer. Prayer not for, the, for healing or for uh, alleviating of problems or any of those things, we should pray for those things. But revival happens when God's people specifically pray for revival. Every revival in the history of the church has happened after a period of focused prayer. Are you praying for revival? And I don't mean just maybe Sunday mornings. I mean, is it on your heart? Are you burdened? We need revival. I need revival. And so I'm going to pray for it every single day. Folks, that is your biggest need. That is your biggest need. If you are a child of Christ, if you're not a child of Christ, your greatest need is to, is to become a child of Christ. But if you are a child of God, your greatest need is revival. Personal revival, church revival, corporate revival, community revival, whatever you want to call it, Your greatest need is revival. And when you see that as your greatest need, then guess what you're going to pray for every day?